Uh, please give that Pastor Jason, and uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, thank you for your spirit who helps us to understand it. And whether we're very familiar with these things or new to them all, and it's all very strange, we pray you'd help us to listen to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Fourth of October last year, student pilot has just taken over the controls of an RAF Hawk jet flying over Anglesey. And within moments, a larger three propeller civilian aircraft appears on the right hand side of the Hawk jet, virtually level. Immediately, the instructor, the, the, co the co rear cockpit co pilot, takes over controls and enters an evasive turn. And the larger plane passes almost directly overhead just a few hundred feet away. Investigators concluded afterwards that, quote, altitude separation between the aircraft had been more by providence than design. In other words, it was a near miss. Catastrophe avoided by luck, not by any careful planning on behalf of the pilots. And our story this morning also records a narrow escape, a near miss, Disaster is avoided, but not thanks to the human actor's careful planning, but the providence of God. And that doesn't mean God got lucky, it means his sovereign providence, the way he rules over, as king over absolutely everything in the whole world, even over sin. I don't know where you are um, with sin right now this morning. Maybe it's something that you try really, really hard to avoid. You, you really want to be a good person. And you'd be horrified if sin suddenly got the better of you. Or maybe you're at the other end of the spectrum and, and the same old sins keep on catching you out. And you can't avoid them. You can't avoid the mess that they land you in. And you wonder perhaps if God's patience is running out. Well, whoever we are, this chapter that we've just read in Genesis says that God deals with our sin according to his grace. And that means his goodness towards us, his undeserved goodness to us that none of us deserve. And I think that is just what we would expect in a, chat, in a book, the book of Genesis, that is all about God's blessing. We've been studying the story of uh, Abraham here since a couple of months ago, since uh, chapter 12. And since the beginning of chapter 12, we've seen that God's plan is to bring blessing to the world through this man called Abraham and his family. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I will bless those who curse, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Somehow God is going to use Abraham and his family to restore the broken relationship between human beings and himself. And ultimately, of course, that is going to be down to Abraham's great descendant, Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, this story of Genesis shows us God's blessing in miniature as God deals with Abraham and as God deals with the people around Abraham. So as we come to this chapter, which we might have read and thought this is all a little bit odd, we need to be blessing detectives. Where do we see God's blessing? Where do we see the opposite of God's blessing or the absence of God's blessing? How is God keeping his promise to bless the world through Abraham? How does, God, how does what God does here point us to what he does to us, for us, through Jesus Christ? There are two answers to those questions, and both of them are all about grace. Uh, first of all, God's grace keeps sinners. 
from sinning. God's grace keeps sinners from sinning. Verse 1 7. Uh, verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. Uh, let me show you a little bit on a map. Abraham has been living at a place called Mamre, which is basically right near Hebron. You can see that on the map. He's been there since the end of chapter 13, and that's about 20 years. It's had its ups and downs, but at least life there has been familiar for Abraham and his family, his wife. But now it's time to move on, and suddenly he is uncomfortable and insecure. And he gets to Gerar, and he thinks, what are my new neighbours like? Can God watch over me in this unfamiliar place, or do I need to fend for myself? And he decides to do something that he's done before. Verse 2, And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. If you've been reading the story, you'll be thinking, Oh, I've heard this before. And you have. Because it's almost exactly the same thing that happens in chapter 12, when Abraham and Sarah were in Egypt, and Abraham pretended that Sarah was his sister then, and Pharaoh took her. But when we read chapter 12 and chapter 20 alongside each other, chapter 12 looks like a kind of carefully crafted plan on, on uh, Abraham's part. Chapter 20 just looks like instinct. He just does it. Uh, he's thinking to himself, what, is the, what if this local king is like Pharaoh? What if he takes a fancy to my wife? What if he decides I'm going to have her and I'm going to get rid of him in order to get her? It's instinct. It's an old sin he's tried before. And he thinks, why not give it a go again? And we'll come back to what Abraham, uh, God thinks about Abraham's old sin later on in the second half of the chapter. But for now, the camera shifts to Abimelech, king of Gerar, and to this lesson. God's grace keeps sinners from sinning. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of, of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. So there is Abimelech snoozing in his palace, not a care in the world, king of his kingdom, and suddenly he's, he gets this nightmare, and God says to him, you are in big trouble with me. Because Abimelech is a sinner. He's on the verge of committing sin, specifically the sin of adultery. He's not one of God's people, but he is under the authority of God's perfect moral law. And if he breaks it, he's going to pay the price. Just as Adam and Eve did when they took the fruits and became as good as dead in chapter 3, Abimelech is distraught. Verse 4. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. See, Abimelech was a little bit like those two pilots flying over Anglesey. He didn't wake up one morning and think, I'm going to get really, really close to the line. I'm going to try and get as close to it as I can to a disaster, but not actually experience disaster. He's just doing what kings did in those days. He doesn't deliberately try to break God's law. He just takes Abraham and Sarah at their word. He's my brother, she's my sister. Well, I'm the king, I'll have her. Because that's what kings did in those days. On the inside, in his conscience, and on the outside with his hands, he's in the clear. His record is clean. And so he begs God, don't destroy me and my nation. We're innocent. Surely you can see that. His conscience is speaking to him. Now the New Testament also says that our conscience speaks to us about what is right 
and wrong. For example, the book of Romans, chapter 2.15, says the Gentiles, that's everyone apart from the Jews, show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. Or as someone has said, every person on the planet has a little courtroom in their heart called the conscience. Our conscience is like a, a compass, a moral compass, pointing towards what is right and wrong. It's broken, it's not perfect, but it's not completely broken. Sometimes it shows us our guilt, sometimes it shows us that actually we're doing okay. And that is where Abimelech is in his dream. He's thinking, I didn't do this on purpose, my conscience is clear. Sarah is an accidental near miss. And so he prays a prayer, like if you were here last week, Abraham prayed for the wicked city of Sodom. Do you remember that? Abraham's praying there, Lord, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And now Abimelech is praying the same thing. Will you destroy an innocent nation? And God's answer to him is surprising. Verse 6. Then God said to him in a dream, in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch it. This is almost the most amazing verse in this chapter. That is why I kept you from sinning against me. See, God is so in control of Abimelech's life that he allows him to sin this much, but no further. He allows Abimelech to take Sarah, but not to touch her. He lets this powerful king, who presumably could do whatever he wanted, take Sarah into his palace, but not into his bed. God's grace keeps sinners from sinning. It's not down to luck, it's down to God's sovereign providence, that he is absolutely in control of everything, even our sin. Of course the Bible teaches, doesn't it, that, the, that sin is like an untamable monster. It's like a master that wants to hold us captive. If we allow ourselves to be gripped by that monster or commanded by that master, it can devour us, it can enslave us. Sin is powerful, but it's no match for God's grace. He is king over every part of our lives, even where sin is easy or expected or habitual. He knows the faulty moral compass in our hearts. He knows exactly what we have done and haven't done what we did on purpose, by mistake, and without even realising it. And in every single one of those places, God's grace can keep us from sinning. It is worth pondering that a moment. Maybe you're a Christian person here this morning, maybe not. But just think back over your life. How many moments were there, are there, where you nearly did what you knew was wrong? Or you nearly did what you didn't even know was wrong at the time? And there was a near miss, a catastrophe avoided, or just a small kind of uh, alternative route you could have taken which God kept you on the right one. Why in the history of our lives are there those near misses instead of head-on collisions? I think it is because God put a roadblock or a traffic jam in the way. God's grace kept us from sinning. What a great God we have whose grace is so involved in our lives that, that he keeps us from sinning. How worthy of our praise and thanks he must be. But it's not enough just to simply praise and thank him 
for his sovereign grace, we also need to respond how Abimelech did. We need to turn around, we need to follow the diversion signs. In other words, we need to repent. Verse 7. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. See, it's no use being convicted of our sin and then doing nothing about it. We need to take that diversion route. In Abimelech's case, that meant returning Sarah so that he wouldn't die. For us, I think it means putting the sins, the habitual sins in our lives, to death by the power of his Holy Spirit, as it says later on in, in Romans. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The wonderful gift of the Spirit isn't yet available for Abimelech. But God's dealings with him are like a signpost towards the blessing of his gospel. God will bless all the nations of the world when he pours out his Holy Spirit on all who trust in Jesus. God himself will be our helper to keep us from sinning, to enable us to, to turn around, to take the diversion route. And the Christian life is an invitation to allow God to work in our lives by his grace. But how can this blessing really come through Abraham. After all, the story started, didn't it, with him sinning, not Abimelech's sin. How does God deal with Abraham's sin? And I think that's the story of the second half of the chapter. Second, God's grace covers over sin, even the sins we keep on sinning. God's grace covers over sin, even the sins we keep on sinning. So uh, Abimelech wakes up from his dream, and before he has breakfast, he um, convenes like an emergency cobra meeting or something like that and his nightmare is the only item on the agenda around the cabinet table and there's silence and a sense of foreboding and there's fear and they think we've got to get Abraham in to explain ourselves. verse 9 what have you done to us how have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom you have done things to me that should never be done and Abimelech asked Abraham what was your reason for doing this once again, the contrast with the story we saw last week of Sodom and Gomorrah is striking. Abraham, in those chapters, was the one praying for Sodom. He was asking God to do the right thing. And now he is the target of Abimelech's challenge, saying, you've done the wrong thing. And Abraham's answer, I think, is an absolute disgrace. First, verse 11, he slanders Abimelech and his people. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, even if that is the sort of thing that might have happened in those days, kings killing people to get their wives, the story itself has shown us the opposite, hasn't it? Abimelech and all his officials did fear God a lot. Second in verse 12, he spins some far-fetched story about Sarah. Verse 12, besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. Well, if that's true, it's irrelevant. She's still his wife. And it's the first we've heard of it in Genesis, so maybe it's not even true. Third, he blames everyone but himself. Verse 13, and when God caused me to wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. First of all, he says, it's God's fault. If God hadn't made me wander from my home and given me the blessing of the gospel, then I'd never be in this position. Then he says, it's Sarah's fault. I told her to be involved. She's just as much to blame as me. 
Sounds a bit, doesn't it, like Adam and Eve. It's God's fault, it's her fault, it's his fault, it's circumstances' fault. And isn't that what we often respond to, the way we respond to our sin as well? It's anyone else's fault but mine. In our families or with our children, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our nation, we're trying to weasel our way out of our sin when all we really ought to do is say, I'm sorry, I've got it wrong. Too often we return to the same old sins and the same old excuses. To quote uh, a couple of famous theologians, first of all, Ed Sheeran. Every pure intention ends when the good times start, falling over everything to reach the first time spark. It started under neon lights and then it all got dark. I only know how to go too far. Ooh, 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 ooh. My bad habits lead to you. Or that other um, theologian, a little bit older, Britney Spears. Oops. I did it again. You see, we don't deserve God's blessing. We go back to those old sins like an addict goes back to his fix. But God offers us his blessing anyway. He covers our sins with his grace, even in the most surprising ways. Verse 14. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you, live wherever you like. It's almost as if Abimelech takes the place of God in Abraham's life. He returns his wife, he gives him livestock and staff, he gives him the finest choice of the Gerar property market, he even pays compensation to Sarah, even if he can't resist a little brief moment of biting irony. Did you spot that? Verse 16. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offence against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Sarah can leave or stay with her head held high. No matter who's heard of what may or may not have happened, no matter what rumours are swirling around her, Abraham's grace, this gift, covers every sin and all her shame. That is the richness and the beauty of God's grace to Abraham and Sarah. It covers every sin, even the sins we do again and again. But I think the climax of the chapter actually comes right at the end. The climax of grace. When the most surprising thing of all happens. Verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. It's an extraordinary ending. Abraham has sinned against his wife and against his host and against God. He's lied about it. He's taken no responsibility whatsoever. God has given Abraham's sin-covering grace through Abimelech. But now grace flows the other way around. you see that? God blesses Abimelech through his man, Abraham. It's a little taste of that promise we saw at the beginning. All nations on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham does not deserve it at all. But he is given the tremendous privilege of being a prophet to the nations, to this nation of Gerar. Chapter 19, God answered Abraham's prayers for Sodom by rescuing his nephew Lot. Now he answers his prayers for this undeserving king of Gerar by giving and them life in the place of lifelessness. 
God's grace flows through Abraham to the nations. But Abraham is just a little trailer of even greater grace through an even greater prophet who prays for the whole world, who gives life, eternal life, instead of death. Hebrews 7 says this, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Sometimes the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as a priest, the one who offers sacrifices to God. Other times as a prophet, the one who speaks to us on God's behalf. He perfectly fulfills every Old Testament role that was about connecting people with God. And he describes him as a priest here, but almost a bit like a prophet as well, one who speaks back to God. And Jesus is so much greater than Abraham. He lives forever, he never sinned. He always prays in the language of that verse on the screen, he intercedes for us. Jesus knows all our near misses, all our bad habits, every time when we did it again. And he stands in heaven for us, pleading the sacrifice of his death on the cross so that we might receive grace that keeps us from sinning and grace that covers over every sin, even those sins we keep on sinning. So I wonder where you are with sin this morning. Are you trying your best, desperately trying not to let sin get the better of you, really wanting as much as you can to be a good person? Maybe that's what brings you to church today. Maybe that's what brings you to church most weeks. It's a good, Abimelech-like desire to, to live a good life, to please God. And we look in the mirror and we see a little bit of Abimelech looking back. Or maybe we look in the mirror and we see a little bit more like Abraham, at least up to verse 17. Bad habits that we just can't shake off. The first sin, the first time we did it, it involved quite a lot of thinking, like, a bit like Abraham in Pharaoh. The next time we did it, like Abraham in Gerar, it's just a habit. We just did it instinctively. Too many conversations with the same old excuses. Whoever we are, God's grace through Jesus is enough. In the present and the future, it keeps sinners from sinning. And in the present, alongside the past, it covers over every sin, even those sins we keep on sinning. Should we spend some time thanking God for his amazing grace? Let's pray. was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. And Lord, we pray that that grace would be precious to us, not just the first hour, but every moment that we believe. Grace that covers every sin, even those sins we find so hard to, to shake the bad habit, even those near misses that we didn't even realise, the ways in which you keep us from sinning. We pray that your grace would be sweet to our ears, to our minds, and to our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue to pray. Ryan is going to come and leave. Oh, sorry, no, she's going to leave.